If you'll please turn your Bibles to the book of Malachi. I know you may be wondering why I'm preaching from Malachi. Well, because when I preached from it this last Sunday evening, someone said you need to preach this on Sunday morning. And uh, I hope I did that another time a long time ago, preached something on Sunday evening. That someone said you need to preach this Sunday morning. The guy that night said this is an A-plus sermon. Sunday morning came up to the pulpit and said, this is more like a B sermon this morning. So hopefully that will not happen today. And I, I did alter it. I did more study, more research, more writing. Um, and hopefully it, it will be uh, better. Uh, and uh, it, whatever the, the effort and work that goes into it is up to the Lord to bless the proclamation of his word. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning, as was a pattern of the God's people of old showing respect for the Scriptures. Let's hear the word of the Lord. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. To you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Uh, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there was one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I would ask you to pray for me and pray for yourselves as you sit under the proclamation of God's word this morning. Let's pray. Our God, we pray that this would be beneficial to us as your people. I would ask you to help me to preach. Pray that you would be with the congregation. Pray that you would be with any who may be here that are outside of faith, that you would grant faith to them. Pray that you would strengthen your people. And pray, O God, that Christ might be glorified in the service. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Malachi is the last book written in the Old Testament. It was likely written between 450 or 435 B.C. The history of it is Israel had been in captivity for 70 years in Babylon, taken by Nebuchadnezzar. They have now come back to their homeland. They have rebuilt the temple. They have rebuilt the wall, as we learn from Ezra and Nehemiah. Most scholars think that uh, Malachi was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah because they deal with the same sins. The sins dealing with that of false priests, false prophets, that of difficulties in marriage, that of greed, that of abusing those who are poor. In the format of the book, it is entirely prose. There's no poetry in the book at all. It's a satire. 
The rhetorical questions asked by God. God asks the prophets questions and the priests questions. They respond with innocence. What have we possibly done? And then God answers them, and it's a condemnation that he gives to them in each particular case. This morning, we're going to look at the leadership of the church. And as we live in America in this century, we can look at the leadership of our churches in our own land and ask this question, is there faithfulness among those who are in the pulpits preaching the gospel Is there an emphasis upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there a display of sincerity on the part of pastors, on the part of those in the congregation who sit under the proclamation of God's word? As you read this text in in Malachi, it's kind of dumbfounding that these people knew that they were in captivity because of unfaithfulness. They had been idolaters. They had been unfaithful to God. They were taken away to captivity. They've come back home. God is blessed. And now they have fallen into very, very poor practices. As if the trial had never occurred. As if God had never in any way whatsoever chastised them. This morning as I go through this text, would have us to see this. And this is from all of us as well. God demands respect from those who would approach him and worship. God demands respect from those who would approach him and worship. And at the end of this, we're going to ask ourselves, what frame of mind do we have when we come into the Lord's house to worship him? This is the most unique day in the life of the church. Sunday morning, the Lord's day. The day that has been set aside for God's people, for the church, to assemble for worship. It is the most important day in the life of the believer in that the primary means of grace is the proclamation of the word. How is it when we come here to worship? What is our mindset? What is our heart like? So three things this morning as you look at this and hear these. The degree of respect we have for God is determined by our recognition of his greatness. The second thing, the degree of respect we have for God will will determine our approach to God. The third thing, the degree of respect we have for God is elevated as we remember God's judgment and grace. And the first thing then, the degree of respect one has for God is determined and recognized by his greatness. Uh, Ceteris paribus, all things being equal, children respect their parents. Children love their parents, right? Now, there are cases, and I know of cases, and I had friends growing up that did not have particularly good fathers. They were abusive. They were harsh. They were overbearing. And they were cruel. If you remember Lonesome Dove, when young Sean's talking to Newt, and they left Ireland to come to America, he and his brother Alan, and he talked about missing his mother. And he said, what about your father? He said, well, he only came home when he had a mind to beat me and Alan. He was a drunkard. He fell in the well and drowned. Well, it's hard to respect somebody that's like that. Hard to respect a father that's like that. Hard for children to respect a father that's like that. And so in most cases, again, all things being equal and normal, children respect and love their fathers. And you notice this. As Malachi writes this through the, in the uh, inspiration of God, 
he begins verse 6 by saying, a son honors his father. This is a rudimentary, basic emotion. Parents normally adore their children. And I will say this, if you have had a child, it opens up a whole new world of love when you have your own children. It is just an amazing thing how much we love our children. And so here, as Malachi continues in this through this uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, he begins to deal with that filial relationship. God speaking to them, a son honors his father. A servant respects and fears his master. If I am your father, then where is the love and where is the fear that you should have for me as a father? And they say, well, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Israel knew that they were in a unique relationship with God. They were his particular children. Of all the nations of the world, we read this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, you only have a chosen of all the peoples in the world. And there is a picture of the doctrine of election in the Old Testament. When God, by his grace, by his mercy, by his kindness, reason only to himself, he chooses a particular people. And he administered uh, grace to those people through the prophets and through the worship services and through the sacrifices that they understood God was uniquely their God, Yahweh, Jehovah. They were his people. He was their God by his grace. Now we can talk about that God is universally the, uh, the uh, father of all in one sense and that he is the creator. All things belong to him. He is the father in his providence that he takes care of the world. He takes care of people. Those who hate him the most, he cares for them. They live and they move and they have their being in the creator, God. He takes care of them. So he is the father by virtue of creation. He is the father by virtue of his providence and caring for his creation. But as far as Israel is concerned, he is their father by adoption. He is their God and they are his people. And they could say to him, as no one else could, Father. You remember in the New Testament, when Jesus began to use the term Father to describe their relationship with God, that they thought it was kind of unusual that an individual would have referred to God as Father, the closest of the relationship. And so here it is used as a sense of condemnation. And he says to the priest, you despise my name. You who are supposed to serve me, you who are supposed to love me, you who are supposed to be faithful, well, you despise my name. We understand the name as being that of reputation. There are many names in the Bible used to describe God. All of them emphasize something unique and different about his character, about his attributes. Uh, we can read Elohim, used in the Old Testament. Uh, it signifies his greatness. Uh, El Shaddai, God Almighty, El Elan, God Most High. And so in each case, when the name of God is used, it emphasizes a particular aspect of his being, Yahweh. Uh, a verb of being, I am that I am. Remember when Moses uh, was told by God to go back uh, to Egypt and to bring his people out from Egypt. He said, well, the gods of Egypt have names, so who are you? 
What is your name? And he says, Yahweh. That's great. I am that I am. The self-existent one. What a name. What a name. In the New Testament, there are two names basically to describe God. That is Theos and Kurios. One translates God. One translates Yahweh. And here, in the sense of how they have despised his name, well, God's name is glorious. God's name is righteous. God's name is majestic. And they're treating God as if his name is mud. They are disrespecting the great God of their salvation. Listen to how... Isaiah describes it in this text that we read at Christmas. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6. Listen to the names that were applied to. This is Christ, ultimately, but to our great God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government there shall be And of his peace there shall be no end. This is the God of our redemption. This is the God of our salvation. This is the God of Israel of old. And yet they're treating him as if he is nothing. Less than nothing. His attributes are clearly seen through his revelation of himself. And his attributes declare him to be holy. Righteous, glorious in all of his being. And we understand as we come together on the Lord's Day morning, that's the God that we come to serve. Glorious, righteous, altogether holy, that is adored by the angels, and the angels gather around to listen to us sing his praises. That's our God. That's the God that is spoken of here in the book of Malachi. And the priests were despising his name, and it is they simply had no respect for God. And again, the attitude that you have toward God, the mindset you have toward God will determine how you approach him. Well, the priest did not respect God at all. It came, uh, came through as far as how they conducted themselves in the temple. God had prescribed the worship of God in the temple as far as the sacrifices that were offered. God had given specific instructions as to what the priests were to do, what kind of animals they were to offer. It was clear, and keep in mind this, the significance of the altar in the temple in the Old Testament, because on that altar and the sacrifices was pictured the ultimate sacrifice to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the priests are being willy-nilly about it. And the people that were bringing the sacrifices also were disrespecting God. We will never have clowns in the worship service. Not going to happen. We will never bring in animals during the worship service. Something to uh, demonstrate Noah's Ark or something along those lines, whatever the case may happen to be. We're not going to have dancing in the worship service. It's not going to happen. Because 
It's not prescribed by the Lord. If God said bring clowns into the worship, we would bring them into the worship service. It would be an offense to God. That's what's happening here. There's no respect for God being displayed in the lives of these priests. Because though God had given specifically the mandates for how they were to worship, they were to offer animals that had no blemish upon them. They were to be perfect because they pictured and represented, looked forward to the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone was going to pay for the sins of a sinful people, it had to be someone who had no sin. A sinner can't die for a sinner. A sinner can't substitute for another sinner. So the necessity of the incarnation, God becoming man, the necessity of the flawlessness of Christ to go to the cross of Calvary to die for sinful people. These animals were to be without blemish. And yet notice what he says here. Have we despised you? And he says, by offering animals that were blind, by offering animals that are lame, by offering animals that are sick. The exact opposite of what God has commanded in his word. And he challenges them. Take these to your governor. Give these sick, diseased animals to your governor. See if he accepts them from your hand. See if he delights in them. And it demonstrates God bringing home upon them the severity of their sin and their guilt. Because what they are doing is not even fit for a sinful man, much less a holy and righteous and sinless God. And the horror of it is seen in this. These were the leaders of the church. I know a church in Muscle Shoals. I know of a church in Muscle Shoals. The minister was there for 20 years. He would preach from the Reader's Digest. He would preach from sports page. He would preach from anything and everything but the Bible. He was offering polluted sacrifices from the pulpit. Why they put up with that for so many years, I have no earthly idea. I guarantee you nobody would put up with it here. Not for a day. It wouldn't happen because we assemble together as God's people who have been, by God's grace, taught and understanding that it is the word of God that is to be read and the word of God that is to be preached. There's salvation through that. There's sanctification in that, not in the Reader's Digest. The last thing is... The degree of respect we have for God is elevated as we understand his justice and his grace. And this little prophet, this minor prophet, minor because of the length, not because of lack of importance, God displays himself as a God who is judge. You have despised me. How? You have offered polluted sacrifices. And the imagery here is one who has authority over them, the one who will bring judgment upon them, the one who has the power to do so. And it is, as we recognize as those who are a part of the life of the church of our God and uh, members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is our judge as well. And he looks upon us as we come in here on the Lord's day. And he looks into our hearts and he looks into our minds and he sees how it is that we are coming in on the Lord's day. 
And so we ask ourselves this question as we come here this morning. Are we approaching God as a holy and just and merciful God? It's interesting as you read this, and one person said the spiritual leader, the spiritual level of the people will go no higher than the priest and the preacher. Because of what comes from the pulpit, if it's not the Bible, if it's not the gospel, if it's not God's word, then the people who sit under that profit nothing as far as sanctification is concerned, as far as growth in grace is concerned. And so we would recognize here a warning to us as the people of God. One year in the PCA, I don't know what year it was. I remember talking to Morton Smith about it. Twelve ministers fell into adultery in one year. Twelve. You hear about people that are in the church, they're very involved in the life of the church, and for some reason they just one way break off and fall away. And so we have to see to it that as the people of God, we are being careful to give ourselves to the proclamation of the Scriptures and the studying of the Bible. But then here is a question. Do we, as we examine our own hearts and our own minds, are we people who are giving God tidbits of our life? When you come in to worship, what's the attitude that you have had before you came here? What is the mindset that you have had on your way up here? I had a friend of mine, Steve Justly. Some of you know Steve. from uh, He's been here to preach a long, long time ago. And he said, people, it's like you're in the car and you're fighting. And all of a sudden you get up here and you start smiling and waving at people. It's to change. So God looks into our heart and God cares if you come in and you're angry. He cares if you come in. Your heart simply is not right to come to worship. Preparation for worship begins long before we drive into the parking lot. It actually begins on Sunday afternoon for the next week. So when you come to worship and you're angry, you hear nothing. You perceive no benefit whatsoever from the proclamation of the word. If you hold grudges against another believer, it promises you nothing to come in here on the Lord's Day and sit under the proclamation of God's word. Do we get tidbits of our money? Listen to this. Your money's not yours. Anybody disagree with that? Anybody in here disagree with that? Your money is not your money. I understand the possession. I have right to have it and all that. I understand all that. But from what I understand about the Bible, we are stewards of everything that we have. And that includes our money. And I fear too many of us give our 10% and that's it. The rest is mine. We're like Scrooge McDuck. If you know who that is from Donald Duck cartoons and little books. If you don't tithe, why don't you tithe? Why? You don't want to. You can't. I recognize people getting themselves in situations, especially today. It takes you a week's pay to pay for a gas, a tank of gasoline. It's just absurd. But to have a commitment 
to being generous toward God in tithing. We had to cut our missionaries' supply, our support in half. What are we going to do about it? What do we do? Are we willing to be like the people in Acts that sold property to give to the poor? Are we that committed? God sees our hearts when we come in. He sees the way that we go about our worship. Are we people who are characterized by a sincere desire and so well prepared to come to worship on the Lord's day through prayer, through confession, through repentance, and knowing that God looks at our heart and he is either pleased with us when we come in here or he is displeased with us when we come in here. You notice what God says here? With it, somebody would shut the doors. I said, where's a righteous man? Where's a righteous man that would come and shut the doors and block people from coming in and offering polluted worship to me? He said, it's better for that to happen. And I would rather see no worship at all than to see my name profaned among my people and by the leaders in the church who have no regard for God and no regard for his word and no regard for his law. And he says, I will accept nothing from your hand. But Charles read this morning from the um, book of Matthew. We see the seriousness uh, that the Lord Jesus gave to being prepared to come to worship. If you are offering your gift and you remember that your brother has something against you, don't stay in worship. Don't offer your sacrifice. Go be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift to God. A commitment to worship is obligatory. And commitment to worship has all to do with our attitude, with our hearts, with our commitment. We do not want to be those who give lip service to God, but whose hearts are far from Him. I wish uh, after I get through, somebody else would come up here and preach the same text, and then somebody else come preach the same text, somebody else come preach the same text, because it's so terribly important. What, what a horrible state of affairs when God says, somebody shut the doors and just stop the hypocrisy of worship. When there's no sincerity, when there's no real love for me, when you really are disregarding me, you cannot live your life in such a way as you act like a non-believer and come in here on the Lord's Day and worship and expect God to accept that. There has to be sincere faith, and with faith is repentance. Now, I recognize full well that we're not perfect. I recognize full well that people aggravate you. I may aggravate you as well. I recognize that we have sin dwelling within us, but we deal with it. And we deal with our attitude. And we pray. One of the chief commandments in the scriptures is that we love, we love God first. And then that we love one another. So when we come in here, we want to be ready. And we want to come with sincerity. 
And we want to come as those who were true children of God that honor his name. These were the priests. These were the leaders of the church in the Old Testament. And God, because of the way they went about their shoddy worship, is not pleased. So when we come in to worship our great God, we come repentantly and we come rejoicing. Can we say when we leave here, I was glad to get out because it was just so grueling. Or can we say, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And I was glad to be with God's people. I was glad to hear the word of God read. And what a beautiful fellowship we have here this morning. May God give us that grace to be able to say that. And so the question I would have to offer you this morning is this. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? If you don't, this doesn't mean anything to you. If you do know the Savior, this means a great deal to you because you want to be pleasing to him when you come to worship and you want to benefit from having been in worship by his grace. Let's pray.